So I always tell audiences that they don't need to come prepared. This is a show. They're paying money to come see this. They're not, you know, we're, we're not sitting them down for a lecture here. But on the other hand, if they, the more they know, the, the more perspective they have on the performance. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute. Welcome to the National Orchestral Institute and Festival's podcast series. I'm your host, Robert Linton. And throughout this year's edition of NOI at the Clarice, I've been sitting down with visiting artists, administrators, composers, and participants in the festival for brief question-and-answer sessions. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with conductor Teddy Abrams. At just 29 years old, Abrams has already had a sensational career that has taken him around the world. He has been a conducting fellow with the New World Symphony Orchestra in Miami and the assistant conductor of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and currently he is the music director of the Louisville Orchestra and the Brit Festival Orchestra. Abrams is also an accomplished composer and performer of both piano and clarinet music. While he was at NOI, Abrams led the orchestra in a challenging program consisting of Debussy's Jeu, Ravel's La Valse, and Mahler's first symphony, The Titan. He was able to take time between rehearsals of this grueling program to talk to me about the pieces he had chosen, the role of musicians and orchestras in their communities, and a new work he had just recorded in tribute to Muhammad Ali. So I guess I'll just dig in with NOI to start with. What's it like coming here and working with this batch of musicians that you get to work with here? Well, it's uh, always a really exciting experience to work with a group of young musicians and mm. uh, one of the things about a summer festival is that you really don't know who's going to be in the orchestra. So every year they rebuild it, and of course that means that it could go a lot of different directions in terms of uh, how they play, uh, their approach to music making, their relative experience. You could get, just by chance, half the orchestra has already played one of the pieces, or you could have a, a complete uh, group of people that have never played a single piece that you've programmed. You don't know because it's obviously recreated every single year. But this is a wonderful group. I think it's, it's both really uh, satisfying and, and exciting for me to see their really wonderful approach to the music, but also just their personalities are, are so open and there's a curiosity and, and, a, and an energy behind it and a willingness to delve into really critical details in this music that a lot of times in the rest of the profession you just don't get. Is it jarring to go from working with a professional orchestra full-time to coming into these festival orchestras? It really depends on, on the circumstances. I think as long as everybody has a really great attitude about the music making and there's a rapport between the conductor and the orchestra, then it really it doesn't make a difference who's there on the podium or who's there in the orchestra. It just uh, uh, is all going to be focused on the music and the art. Uh, problems always arise when people's egos and their their personalities or their desires get in the way of actually making great music. And in the end, you know, the pieces of music and the performance and, and most importantly, the audience don't really care about those personality elements uh, or anything that really goes on behind the scenes. What they care about is great music making. And so I've found no matter what orchestra I'm working with, whether it's you know a world-class orchestra everybody's heard of or it's a festival orchestra of young musicians that if you focus on the music you're going to get the by far the best results and, and also you're going to have the best time through the whole process and that's that's what's really important especially in this context with younger musicians you want to give these these folks an experience that will probably stay with them the rest of their lives with this music they have seven rehearsals on this repertoire most professional orchestras have a maximum of four per concert and there are a lot of programs that you do with just a single rehearsal. So it means this is the one time in their lives when they can delve so deeply into the 
music that they can really experience every measure, every marking that the composer wrote on a level that, that gives them an insight into what this music is really about or how it really goes, as opposed to just kind of getting through it for a performance. And these are famous pieces of music that I've programmed. They're going to encounter this music for the rest of their lives. So every time they play a Mahler first symphony performance or uh, Debussy or Ravel, especially Ravel is performed all the time, this experience that they have this week will stay with them and will be the basis on which they, they draw their knowledge about this music. So I want the experience to be, I think, one of, of real learning and, and growth and development and exploration of this music. You mentioned this program that you've selected here. What goes into selecting this program? Is it just you want something that they can use for the rest of their life, or do you have a thematic idea? Do you have a musical through point here? Well, this, this program is less thematic than some. Really, it's, it's kind of two different viewpoints of, of how music would ultimately change in the 20th century. Of course, Mahler took the forms and the, the sounds and the sound world of the classical then romantic era and maybe brought them to their, their fullest expression or, or perhaps even a logical conclusion. So if you take you know a short symphonia by Sammartini or something like that, it progresses then through Haydn and Mozart symphonies, through Beethoven and Schumann and Brahms, uh, ultimately leading up to a composer like Mahler, and then he, he pretty much takes the symphony to the, the absolute grandest, most vast vision you could have for, for a symphony, for that kind of music, you see really the history of the 19th century leading into the 20th, which is remarkable. And then on the other hand, we have composers like Debussy and Ravel who are also looking towards the possibility of something new, but they, even though, well, of course, all music comes from something, nothing is entirely new, it's just not, not possible, things are always reconnecting with the past in some way, but they've, they've taken a new approach that differs from what the Romantic era was mostly about, and Ravel would ultimately not only come from uh, a kind of impressionistic background, but he would start experimenting with jazz and dance forms, and, and was really influenced by American popular music, and lots of sounds that you could only have found in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, and Debussy also took the strands of, of romanticism, incorporated elements of that, but created palettes of music that, that just hadn't been experienced before, palettes that were uh, derived not only from, say, Eastern music, he was fascinated with, with gamelan and, and uh, some sounds of Chinese or Japanese music that had never been heard before until he really encountered this in, in France or, or in Western Europe, at least not re-experienced through Western composers. But he also was influenced by ragtime. He even wrote a couple of rags himself, or cakewalks. And so, so these composers were drawing on something very new and these are both uh, the both halves of the program are really about the entire musical direction changing as people realize that as an artist you could say whatever you wanted you weren't bound by whatever people ordered and bought and so are you then going for like the moment of change here because you said Mahler takes this to the apex of the symphonic form maybe I think you can make that argument that in seven eight nine he's definitely there and in one we're starting to see the germinal beginnings of that so are you trying to find that flash in the pan, that moment where it all begins? Yeah, and these, these uh, pieces all come at different times for the composers. Of course, Mahler's first symphony is a beginning career piece. Debussy's Jeu is an end of career piece. And Ravel's Laval's is middle of career piece. So it's actually really interesting to see how these things are all related to each other. Uh, but Mahler's first symphony really is more or less a very large, expanded, but standard symphony. It's, it's just on a vast scale. The level of integration between each movement and how a theme that comes 
at the very beginning of the first movement is going to be related to every theme in the rest of the piece hasn't been done before. So, so that's something that's perhaps an innovation. But, but if you look at it in, in, in the big picture, although it's a long symphony and it's a big statement, it still follows the traditional form of most symphonies. It breaks down thematic material into groups, into keys, the same way that really Mozart would have done. It's just three or four times as long as, as a lot of earlier works. Uh, and and it's, I mean, it doesn't feel overly long, partly because what, one of the things that Mahler does, this is an innovation on his part, is that he's very, very flexible with the time. So if you notice most earlier symphonies, really have one or maybe two tempos, two different speeds in any given movement. There might be a slow introduction and then mostly fast section of the first movement. There might be a middle movement that's, that's fast, slow, fast. But Mahler constantly shifts tempo around. There are lots of long dramatic buildups, lots of long dramatic slowdowns, lots of sudden slowdowns, lots of tempos that are slightly different versions of each other. So he's constantly playing with this sense of speed and pacing. And that's one of the reasons somebody can listen to, in this case, it's a 52-minute symphony, but then you know, the symphony's expanded beyond 90 minutes. And partly, uh, he, he treats it like, I would imagine a filmmaker would, would have treated something versus perhaps some of the earlier composers weren't thinking about, about cinema. I doubt Mahler was specifically thinking of cinema, but he was definitely thinking of drama. But the reason I make the film allusion is because films are paced that way too. I mean, you have sequences that are very high energy and you have sequences that are, are more about plot development and might not be quite as high energy. It's about the contrast of these things that gets your, your interest and, and knowing that inevitably something is coming or something is going to happen. And in Mahler, you always feel like that. One of the things that I always run into when I have to write about Mahler, when I read about Mahler, when I listen to Mahler, is that he is so full of intertext. It seems like everything relates not only to his own work, but to the works of composers around him all the time. How do you get that across? I know you have more time now than you do with most orchestras, but how do you get that across in a limited number of rehearsals? Well, it's a, obviously a rehearsal is kind of like a sports practice of some kind. It's, uh, and, and so for instance, when you have a football team or a baseball team and everybody's practicing, that it may help to talk about the theory and the history of the sport, but ultimately the players still need to run and they still need to practice hitting and they still need to practice throwing. Like they, there's no substitute for that. And so an orchestra rehearsal is a similar kind of thing, talking about the music on a molecular level. Like in other words, how is it composed? What was the inspiration? What was the history behind it? is important, but but on the other hand, it's still a physical act to play these pieces of music. And one of the nice things about having more rehearsal time is that you can get into the history and the context and the subtext and all these, these uh, elements that make the music more than just sound, that, that make it a part of history, that make it a part of a story, that, that maybe also illuminate something about Mahler's own life. There are all these elements. And, and not every composer was very biographical, of course. So for instance, a Haydn symphony, every once in a while, there's a little allusion to something that may have been going going on in his life or something around him. And actually, surprisingly so, but it's not like Mahler, where every measure is infused with some kind of element that, that tells a story that's often way beyond just the one symphony. So with more rehearsals, you can actually get some of that information across, but you still have to balance it out with just drilling and repeating passages over and over again. That's the only way to learn it, especially if you haven't played these pieces uh, many times in the past. And just I would, like I would imagine this, uh, some kind of sports team, the patience with people just talking and explaining things probably is a little bit less than one might expect. This is not a class. This is a rehearsal. Just like it's not a class, it's a, it's a practice if you're on a team. So mostly it's about playing.
uh, and fixing things on, on a musical level. Absolutely, and I think that speaks to why we have musicologists and why we have musicians, right? We've yeah, got to split yeah. those up. Well, and then in the end, you know, people listening to the music shouldn't have to come in with a lot of context. And I, I, often, I often describe it like, a, you know, a really great play. Even Shakespeare, which is by far the most challenging, probably, of the standard performed plays to understand off the bat, but a really great company can get everything across even to a person that doesn't know what's going on, it hasn't read the play, hasn't studied the play, doesn't know the context for the play. It might not have all of, of the, the trappings of somebody who comes in there and knows every bit of the play. They might see it differently, but a great performance will convey the information. So I always tell audiences that they don't need to come prepared. This is a show, they're paying money to come see this. They're not, you know, we're, we're not sitting them down for a lecture here. But on the other hand, if they, the more they know, the, the more perspective they have on the performance. But it's not necessary. That's our job to make it entertaining for them. I'm actually glad you've led here because one of the big emphases at NOI is community engagement. And that's one of the things that you're really well known for is the way you engage with the community in Louisville and other places you've been and the way you really respect the audience and give them a show that they can come in without having prepared for. What sorts of things do you think orchestras and musicians need to be doing in terms of audience engagement? Well, that's always a, a challenging question because um, you know we're, we're we have steep odds against us because basically we're coming off of a hundred years or so of history of really I think um, unhelpful stereotypes about what we actually do, and that's that's tough. So there's this this bias against orchestras against large arts institutions in terms of and it's it's not that people would would come out and say oh I hate. Uh, you know, orchestras. It's not like that. It's not that obvious. But most people, if you ask them, what would you do today if you could do anything? Not generally throughout the population across you know, the U.S. 350 million people would they say, oh, I, the, well, I, I'd go see the orchestra. But a lot of them would say, I'd go see music. I'd go see a show. If somebody had a choice of anything to do today and their favorite band was in town, they'd probably go. What I'm trying to get people to realize is that an orchestra is exactly like that, or at least it should be. And to shake a lot of the, the uh, biases, shake a lot of the really unfortunate stereotypes and, and misconceptions about what it is an orchestra can be. Now, there are a lot of situations where orchestras are not necessarily innovating. And uh, my, my personal approach is that innovation is central to any organization. If you're repeating the same thing over and over again, that's great. You may have a nice asset. You may have, have something that's worth sharing. But you really can't expect to be vital. You really can't expect people to feel a day-to-day a -day relationship with what you're doing. You're just going to repeat the same thing over and over again. And, and that's, that's a recreative art. It's not a creative art. So my whole approach is do things that, that actually make people question what an orchestra is. Make, make people question what music is, how music can relate to that. Make, make the music a part of people's daily lives. An orchestra can do that in a community. They're there all the time. Mm. So if all they see are you know, a few concerts a year, once a week the orchestra comes out and plays a show, and the rest of it's all hidden, then you're really missing all these opportunities to give people this, this musical experience that I think so many of them crave. Most communities I've found, especially in America, are very proud when they realize just how cool their orchestra is or just how impressive they are. And uh, the, the more opportunities you give them to interact with that, the better it is for everybody. You talk about engaging with their community, making that community proud. One of your recent projects was the Float Rumble Roar piece that you composed in memory of Muhammad Ali from Louisville. The connection is there. 
how did that come across? How, how did that happen? How did the community respond to that? It seemed like a fantastic project. Well, it was, it was something that had to happen very quickly. Of course, uh, Mohammed being from Louisville, Louisville became the centerpiece of, of the, the celebrations and the tributes and, and then ultimately the giant funeral that, that uh, was hosted for uh, Ali after he passed. Uh, and he wanted it that way. He wanted his funeral to be in Louisville. He wanted the world to see his hometown for a few days. Of course, every year uh, around the Derby, the world is, is aware of Louisville. But this was much bigger just because it took up an entire week. And the first thing that happened was the, the day after he died, uh, I, I was actually down downtown for a rehearsal. I ran into the mayor and we were saying, well, what can we do? You know, this, it, it was so soon, nothing official had been planned. And so I said, you know what, I bet I can get a group of musicians together. We'll just go to the Ali Center, which is right downtown. And that's, that's what uh, Ali lent his name and helped do all the fundraising to do. It's a center about his life, but also it helps teach young people about courage and, and uh, his history and tolerance. It's a wonderful place. So we, we got kind of a, a group of community musicians. I got a, there's a, a great hip-hop artist there named Jacory 1200 Arthur, and then uh, a rock violinist named Scott Moore, and then, then a, a jazz vocalist, Carly Johnson. We all got together, and we played on Saturday and Sunday right after, because people were just standing around the, the Ali Center morning. There wasn't an official memorial set up. And the media was everywhere with kind of, they're just waiting around. There was nothing really going on. They knew something would happen. So we kind of gave that experience. The second day, we all brought the community together for a group singing of Amazing Grace, which was really wonderful. And then that night, um, I ran into a friend of mine, a really wonderful developer and, and uh, just a, a big community leader in town. He also has a, a record label called Sonoblast. It was, it was at the opening of a concert, one of his bands, and it was maybe 1.30 in the morning or something like that. And the next day I was leaving for a performance. I was leaving out of town. Uh, it was like around midday. And so he said, oh, could you write a tribute piece for Ali? And this being Louisville, it actually all happened. I wrote the piece that next morning super early. One of the great uh, producers, actually in the whole country, lives in Louisville, is near, nearby, his name's Kevin Ratterman. Um, and he actually brought all his great mics over to my house because that was gonna be the easiest way, just mic'd up my piano. We recorded it. Uh, we did about three or four takes. The whole middle section is improvised. Actually, the whole thing is improvised. It's, there's a, there's a, you know, a basic melody and some chords, but most of it's all completely improvised. Uh, the, the texture. Then he said, well, actually, we should ask Jim James, who's the, the lead of, of My Morning Jacket, to record the guitar section kind of at the end, because I kept saying, I really want the end should be a meditation. And that's what we, we did. So I played the Hammond organ. I have a Hammond in my, my house. And so I recorded a bunch of licks on the Hammond, and, and Kevin, the producer, put it all together. So at the end, the organ kind of comes out of the texture and takes over the sound. And then Jim comes in with this very mournful guitar part. And I love how it, how it turned out. And we're donating 100% of the proceeds to the Ali Center. So it, it really turned out really nicely. But that's an example of how I don't know another city that could turn around a project like that in one day, basically. It was pretty awesome. Thanks so much to Teddy for taking the time to sit down and chat. You can follow him on his website, teddyabrams.com, or on Twitter and Instagram, where he can be found at teddyconducts. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, including our two conversations with composer Sam Adams and former Philadelphia Orchestra president and CEO Jim Underkoffler's take on music in 2016, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud. On the first two, just search National Orchestral Institute and subscribe. Or you can follow our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash National Orchestral Institute. 
The National Orchestral Institute and Festival is an annual production by the Clarice in College Park, Maryland. The Clarice is helping to build the future of the arts by educating, training, and presenting the next generation of creative innovators. With performances year-round, there's always something to experience at the Clarice. Check out our schedule by visiting theclarice.umd.edu or by finding us on Facebook under The Clarice. And thanks as always for listening.